Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafut, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Welcome to Then Sings My Soul on WCAT Radio. I'm your host, Annabelle Mosley. I'm a poet, author, and professor of theology, and this is The Sacramental Living Show, bringing John Paul II's call to make your life a masterpiece. Find inspiration for your life through stories, discussions of Catholic theology, and great music, art, and literature. Join us every Sunday night at 9 as we discover how the sorrows and joys of our lives can become the sacrificial songs our souls offer in wonder and awe to God. What is your soul singing tonight? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Then Sings My Soul on WCAT Radio. It's 9 p.m. Eastern here, the blessed hour of Compline, as we end the day in a meditative spirit. We're thankful for God's blessings. We praise Him for His glory, and we beg His assistance for all of our special intentions. So let's raise those intentions together now, as we also remember everyone we've promised to pray for and meditate upon this reading from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. As Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a sizable crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind man, the son of Timaeus, sat by the roadside begging. On hearing that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, Have pity on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he kept calling out all the more, Son of David, have pity on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, get up. Jesus is calling you. He threw aside his cloak, sprang up, and came to Jesus. Jesus said to him in reply, What do you want me to do for you? The blind blind man replied to him, Master, I want to see. Jesus told him, Go your way. Your faith has saved you. Immediately he received his sight and followed him on the way. So now, with the faithful persistence of Bartimaeus, we pray this prayer to the Holy Spirit. Breathe into me, Holy Spirit, that all my thoughts may be holy. 
Move in me, Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Attract my heart, Holy Spirit, that I may love only what is holy. Strengthen me, Holy Spirit, that I may defend all that is holy. Protect me, Holy Spirit, that I may always be holy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, here on Then Sings My Soul, we practice sacramental living. That's the art of training ourselves through faith to see daily life, even in ordinary time, as filled with signs and symbols of God. We're currently presenting a series on the rosary. As part of that, I'm sharing some poems, art, music, and reflections from my book about the rosary, which is forthcoming soon from En Route Books. The book's title is Sacred Braille, The Rosary as Tangible Masterpiece. I'm seeking through the book to ignite excitement for the rosary in both those who are new to the devotion and those who regularly pray it. In the book, along with reflections and prayers, I've written poems for every mystery of the rosary. For each mystery, there will also be a featured work of art, with meditations and suggestions for how to breathe new life into your personal prayers or prayer groups. So for the visual art component of tonight, I'm inviting you on your laptop, your tablet, smartphone, maybe it's the one you're already using to listen to the show, to please feel free and I invite you to look up some of the art I'll be referencing. Now, last week we journeyed with all of the sorrowful mysteries. Tonight, we'll start journeying through the luminous mysteries. For this first mystery, the baptism of Jesus, you may wish to search for Baptism of Christ. It's by Tintoretto. It was painted in 1589 in the Church of San Silvestro. So there's more than one Baptism of Christ painted by Tintoretto. He did more than one. So the one we're looking for is, again, Tintoretto's Baptism of Christ from the Church of San Silvestro. When you view it, note how the glowing light around Christ is so natural, so believable, at the same time that it's arrestingly magnificent. There's just no other way to put it. It's, it's so notable. Even St. John the Baptist's arm that's reaching out glows with this otherworldly light, which shows the incredible God-sanctioned sacredness of his act as he baptizes Jesus. The rest of John remains mostly in shadow, but that arm is just glowing. Notice also that we're finding both protagonists in an incredibly humble posture, Yet both are also extremely muscular, and that's a perfect juxtaposition of gentle piety and great strength. I'll begin with a reading from Matthew, chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you are coming to me? Jesus said to him in reply, Allow it now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, 
After Jesus was baptized, he came up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. And a voice came from the heavens, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And now here's my poem, The Baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan. The Jordan River was a font of light, reflecting green trees crowned with swaying leaves. The Baptist's eyes shone passionately bright, his arms outstretched to soldiers as to thieves. No one who sought anointing was denied. The rugged man who dressed in camel skins shared wild honey, faith, offered to guide repentance under water, drowning sins. When Jesus came and bowed his head, then bid John to submerge God in the river's tomb, the two embraced the way their mothers did when they themselves were still within the womb. Like two halves of a scallop shell, they met, forming a pearl of strength against death's threat. Our own baptism is one of the happiest days of our lives, but few of us actually remember it. We call to mind now the happy fact that our baptism makes each of us priest, prophet, and king. What can we do to live sacramentally with the way we celebrate the occasion of a baptism? Celebrating, hopefully, <laughs> the beginning of a journey to eventual sainthood for that child. After all, that's what we're all called to do. And no, we're not meant to say, Oh, I'll never be a saint. That's reserved for perfect people. Many saints were very great sinners before they amended their lives. And we're all called to be saints. That's our life's work. And we must bravely take up the journey of the pilgrim and try. Strive for that. So I'll never forget when my first child was baptized. The priest held up the baby to the congregation and said, Well now, all of you are now in the presence of a saint. And everybody clapped. This was on the feast of Christ the King, which always falls shortly before Thanksgiving. Now let me tell you, we all had a good laugh at the Thanksgiving table when my Uncle Edwin declared, Well, it's sure an honor to have a saint in the house. <laughs> I've chosen um, with each of my children to baptize them at the 10 o'clock Mass so that the entire community can welcome them. And I highly recommend baptizing children at a Mass. It's such a special experience, and it's a great blessing for everyone who's present. Best of all, when a child is baptized at a Sunday Mass, the Litany of the Saints is sung. Yep, the same litany that's sung at the Easter Vigil, on All Saints Day, and at the Liturgy for Conferring Holy Orders. So, since this is the show for sacramental living, let's consider what special gift we can give our children, whom we hope will grow up to be saints, for their baptism. 
What kind of baptismal gift can we give our future saints? Well, one thing we can do is to engrave the date and location of their baptism somewhere onto a special gift for them. Whether it's a Bible, the back of a crucifix, a Christmas ornament, even a framed plaque or a photo of the day that's framed, something that for the rest of their lives will remind them of the date and the place of their baptism. Here's another idea. Give your child a symbol. So, for example, think of how St. Therese of Lisieux is often shown among roses. St. Peter is often depicted holding keys, right? Each of the gospel writers has a symbol. St. Matthew is the winged man. St. Mark, the winged lion. St. Luke, the winged ox. And St. John, the evangelist, is the winged eagle. Of course, an eagle is always winged. But they all winged. It's a very beautiful connection between the four evangelists. Throughout Catholic tradition, throughout great Catholic art as a whole, we come to identify these holy men and women by their symbols so that we might walk into any church and see a painting or a statue and without any written label of a name, be able to say, oh, that's St. Francis or that's definitely Our Lady of Guadalupe right there. I can tell. So, I suggest that for a child's baptism, it's fun and very beautiful to choose a symbol for him or her associated with the birthday, baptism date, or baptism location of your child. For example, I went into labor with my eldest son on the feast of St. John the Baptist. So I chose for his baptismal celebration to decorate the invitation, the tables, and the party favors with scallop shells. They're, of course, the symbol of baptism and also of St. John the Baptist. I gave every guest a holy card with a prayer to St. John the Baptist. And though my son's still a very small child, he already knows the scallop shell is his. It's his shell. He even has a few in his room. And I hope as he grows, it will become a symbol That reminds him of his patron saint, his baptism, his truest self. If he ever had a coat of arms, I think the scallop shell would be on it. (laughs) Um, For my younger son, he was baptized on the Feast of Corpus Christi. His middle name is Joseph. So for his baptismal celebration, I decorated the invitation and the tables with the St. Joseph Lily which, of course, as the guardian and protector of our Blessed Mother, is the perfect flower for Joseph. So for the favors, I gave out a St. Joseph holy card, and it has this prayer on the back, which has really come to be one of my all-time favorite prayers. I'll pray it now, um, and please pray along if you know it. Here it is. O St. Joseph, whose protection is so great, so strong, so prompt before the throne of God, I place in you all my interests and desires. O St. Joseph, by your powerful intercession, obtain for me from your divine Son all spiritual blessings through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that having engaged here below your heavenly power, I may offer my thanksgiving and homage to the most loving of fathers.
O St. Joseph, I never weary contemplating you and Jesus asleep in your arms. I dare not approach while he reposes near your heart. Press him in my name and kiss his fine head for me and ask him to return the kiss when I draw my dying breath. St. Joseph, hear my prayers and obtain my petitions. St. Joseph, pray for us. Amen. I'll also make a note that probably next week we're going to be doing an episode that includes um, favorite prayers. So do start thinking of what your favorite prayers are. I'm sure you already know, but there might be more than one that you have that you call upon in special times. Um, So now, in honor of the first luminous mystery, the baptism of Jesus, I'll play for you The Litany of Saints by John Becker. As the song plays, let's meditate on this thought. Who are your patron saints that you would want included in a litany? Who are the saints that have helped to get you through? Who've been amazing role models for you, who inspire you, who've assisted you? So listen, and perhaps their names will be included in the litany here. And also ask yourself, do you know the date and location of your baptism? If you don't, why not resolve to find out so that you may give thanks on that day every year? Mine is November 11th. (laughs) Um, I hope you can find out yours. And by the way, this music is also perfect for All Saints Day. Coming right up on that. So here now is the Litany of Saints by John Becker. Paul, Andrew, James, John, 
So now, inspired by the second luminous mystery, the Wedding at Cana, you may wish to search for a work of art called Wedding at Cana by Duccio. That's Wedding at Cana by Duccio. You'll be moved by the visible bond between Jesus and Mary, the knowing look shared between mother and son.
We begin with this reading from John, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana, in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servers, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washings, each holding twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus told them, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it. And when the head waiter had tasted the water that had now become wine, without knowing where it came from, although the servers who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, an inferior one, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the beginning of his signs in Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory, and his disciples began to believe in him. After this, he and his mother, his brothers and his disciples, went down to Capernaum and stayed there only a few days. And now I give you my poem. The Wedding Feast at Cana Like wine, my days of freedom have run short. The lyre and the flute play sweetly still. The wedding dancers carelessly cavort. But I have come to do my mother's will. Take six stone jars and fill them to the brim. And as the water flows, I say goodbye to my life as a private person. Dim the light on who I was. Prepare to die. A carpenter knows when the wood is planed enough. I wanted more time to make smooth my readiness for what has been ordained. Instead, I give my splintered joy and youth. This is my wedding, too. Tonight I give myself to ministry that you might live. Uh, in preparing to write poems for each of the Mysteries of the Rosary, I really found that dwelling closely with some mysteries were particularly moving, and some of them surprisingly so. One of these mysteries that I never expected to shake me to the core quite the way it did was the wedding at Cana. You know, I'm teaching a graduate class for St. Joseph's Seminary right now on Lexio Divina. Lexio Divina is a wonderful, ancient Benedictine practice of learning to listen to God with the ear of our heart. It's wonderful to watch the reaction of my students when I point out that hiding in plain sight 
Right inside the word heart are the words hear, ear, and art. So if we are people of great heart, and if we meditate in our heart the way Our Lady did, then we come to master the art of hearing with the ear of our heart. We recall that in Scripture, the word heart is used over 700 times. Now, the word mind, as we use it, mind, that's barely mentioned at all in Scripture. See, the Hebrews did not separate the ideas of mind, heart, and soul as we do. They didn't separate functions of reasoning and feeling. All were one. That is why Mary is said to have pondered in her heart. Ponder is a word our society would associate with the mind, and yet it is said she pondered in her heart. We know that when we take a Catholic theology class that teaches or employs the Myers-Briggs personality test, that some people are thinkers and some people are feelers. Now, this label doesn't mean a thinker doesn't feel or a feeler doesn't think. It just refers to which function is your preference for making decisions. So do you put more weight on the objective facts, the logical truth of the matter, or the people involved, harmony and tact? In any case, we're taught that Jesus, as the perfect man, and Mary as the perfect woman, were each a perfect combination of thinker and feeler. And so, in this light, to ponder in our hearts not only makes sense, it's downright holistic. So, according to Lexio Divina, where we listen with the ear of our hearts, there are four steps for reading scripture. Right? There's Lexio, which is reading. Meditatio, or meditation, oratio, that's prayer, and contemplatio, contemplation. I'm happy to say I've come up with a really wonderful mnemonic device to help my students remember the order in which we do things in Lexio Divina. And it goes like this, lead me, O Christ, lead for Lexio, mes meditatio, O is oratio, and Christ is contemplatio. Lead me, O Christ. And that helps us to remember the order in which we go about Lexio Divina. So lead me, O Christ. Well, the whole point of Lexio Divina is really to learn how to let Christ lead us as we read scripture, rather than trying to be in control. We give up control to just listen and be led in the ways Christ wants for us. So, as I went through the steps of Lexio Divina for the wedding at Cana, I was extremely moved. And I have to say, it's still a very memorable experience for me. I was just suddenly struck by how one moment Jesus is a private citizen enjoying the fun of a wedding banquet, and the next moment, doing his mother's bidding and performing his first miracle. 
officially with a miracle kicking off his ministry. Imagine how significant that moment was for Jesus as the dividing line was drawn. The dividing line between his former private life and now his public ministry. A line that, once crossed, could never be walked back. What a devoted and faithful son he is to his mother. Doing her bidding, despite feeling a bit bittersweet about it. And how confident she is in her son. Now sometimes you'll hear someone either in jest or completely seriously discuss the way Jesus calls his mother, woman. For this is not the only place in scripture in which he addresses her this way. He also does so, for example, at the foot of the cross. An extremely loving, tender moment. I think we can see that this use of the word woman is not even for a moment meant to be a slight or a dismissive or derisive word for Our Lady. Jesus and Mary have the most loving and perfect bond as mother and son, and no human being is closer to him than she. So, of course, the use of the word woman is not meant to put her in her place. It is not merely a sign of the times reflecting how men talk down to women. After all, Jesus broke the mold every time, transcending expectations. This is the man who spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. But remember, Jesus is the new Adam, just as Mary is the new Eve. How fitting he begins his ministry as the new Adam, doing the bidding, answering the request of the new Eve. Adam took the fruit at Eve's urging, and as we know, the worst results ensued. Now when Mary, the new Eve, or perfect woman, asks Jesus, the new Adam, or perfect man, for his help, with a knowing look exchanged as she states, they have no wine. He consents to do as she wants, and it's the opposite of the selfish sin in the garden. It's an act of loving, kind assistance and generosity. In John's Gospel, when she asks this of Jesus, she's setting into motion his public ministry and therefore bringing his passion and death closer. Thus, the piercing of her own soul is drawing closer. I'll just say also, I'm going to throw this in, that for him to call her woman, he is one of the persons of the Trinity, and as God, God is the creator of Mary. So, he is created woman. God is created woman. And Jesus calls that beautiful fact to mind also in the most beautiful of ways to call her woman. Now, what a place for Jesus and Mary to decide together that the hour of Christ's public ministry has in fact come. It's a wedding. A wedding which honors the two, right? Male and female at a wedding become one flesh in marriage. 
So first of all, what a special place for Jesus to perform his first miracle at a wedding, as marriages are the foundation of a great society. The noble institution of marriage is all the more blessed because of the Canaan miracle. Adam and Eve were the first marriage through God's ordinances. Now Jesus, often referred to as the new Adam, and Mary, the new Eve, you'll often hear her referred to as that, though they are holy son and holy mother, they do stand together in bonds of covenant as the most perfect model of male and the most perfect model of female. And they agree together through bonds of love and obedience to help this young couple who is married, to bless all Christian marriages, and to give each of themselves fully to Christ's ministry. And another thought, if mother and son, if Jesus and Mary will do all of this to help freshen stores of wine for a wedding, imagine with how much care and tenderness they'll listen to your prayers. There was an article um, in the National Catholic Register back in 2012. It was written by Mark Shea, who's a Catholic writer, um, and it's called The Significance of the Wedding at Cana. That was the article. And in the article, Mark Shea writes, uh, speaking of the wine, Mary is revealed to be using language laden with double meaning to lovingly call Jesus to get on with his mission, not to impress the neighbors with a special effect or publicity stunt. Her point is not simply that the wedding guests have no wine. It's that the whole nation has no wine. All Israel is waiting for the coming of the messianic son of David. When the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of fat things, a feast of wine on the lees, a fat things full of marrow, of wine on the lees, well refined. This is from Isaiah 25. So, this image of the new wine of the messianic age is not unfamiliar to Jesus. This is all from Mark Shea's article. And it talks about how Jesus has read the prophets too. And indeed, Mary was one of the people who taught him to read the prophets. And he announces the very dawn of the messianic age in language, once again linking the image of a wedding with the image of wine. Right? And remember Matthew chapter 9, 14 to 17, with the discussion of new wine and old wineskins. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Right? And then it goes on, neither is new wine put into old wineskins, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So Mark Shea went on to write about how Jesus acknowledges Mary's messianic expectation by replying that his hour has not yet come. It's a reply that makes no sense unless he knows Mary is calling him to begin his messianic mission. More subtly still, he acknowledges his messianic mission by calling her woman. This is more than simply a polite address. It is, like all the rest of their exchange, an allusion to larger Old Testament prophetic realities, as Mary's request is. For in addressing her so, 
he's reminding us of another woman and the promise she and her seed were given long ago. Genesis 3.15 to, quote, crush the serpent's head. The whole conversation makes it clear that Mary believes it's time for Jesus to announce his identity as Messiah and inaugurate the final decisive battle, not with Rome, but with that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. That's Revelations 12. That Jesus knows perfectly well this is what she means and that she knows he knows it. So rather than some inane request for drinks all around, followed by a meaningless rebuke, what we're really looking at here is a profound conversation in which Jesus and Mary know and understand each other perfectly. Mark Shea writes, This is why Mary doesn't back down, and Jesus doesn't expect her to. The bride, the second Eve, confronting the second Adam, seeks the new wine of the kingdom. Indeed, she does so with just the brass and stick to her son urges all his disciples to have, and the result is precisely what she sought. This is from John chapter 2. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana, in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Mary, standing as a kind of icon of the whole church in persistent prayer, chases Jesus until he catches her. And the courtship of Jesus and his bride, the church, begins with Mary as the consecrated icon of the consecrated bride, saying, in effect, Maranatha, show yourself, O Lord. As the music plays, imagine these words of the popular love song, Everything I do, I do it for you. As sung by Jesus to you. Looking to my
How very blessed we are to have that Son, Jesus, and Mother Mary's complete obedience to the Father. Thanks to them. How very blessed we are. It's incredible. And thinking of um, saying a prayer for every marriage that it be blessed um, by Our Lady and by Jesus. The third luminous mystery is the proclamation of the kingdom. So now, inspired by this mystery, you may wish to search for a work of art called Sermon on the Mount by Karl Bloch. You'll be moved by the way Bloch depicts the various postures of those who are listening to Jesus as he speaks. Their body language speaks of their internal reactions. I think you'll find it really interesting. That's Karl Bloch, Sermon on the Mount. So we think of the Sermon on the Mount And that quote from scripture, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now this luminous mystery stands for the entire three-year public ministry of Jesus, encapsulated in the reminder to admit our sinfulness, repent it, and to have faith, to believe the good news. So now I give you my poem, Jesus Proclaims the Kingdom of God. The one who in the wilderness cried out has decreased like a waning summer moon. Be reconciled quickly. Do not doubt. The time is not someday, not even soon. It's close as palm and fingers, knuckles, wrist. Your folded hands in prayer are two stopped clocks. Enter my gate. Do more than just subsist. Like sunrise, my light lifts the ripe corn stalks, saving the ones who gaze upon my face. The wind and rain will blow, and some will fall, but some will straighten up within my grace, while some will fall in mud, a bitter sprawl. Repent, my mercy waits for you, divine. You are my harvest field. Through me, you shine. As I teach my graduate students, it can be hard work to believe that we could possibly be invited to participate in God's kingdom. It's as though a peasant covered in dirt and sweat has just been handed a golden bejeweled invitation to a king's banquet. It's met with shock and surprise. And yet, if we repent and believe... We are invited to God's kingdom. How awesome it is. How wonderful. And so, as I give you the breathtaking music of Lauren Daigle, reminding us, Jesus, you say, and I believe, it's really a wonderful response in song to the third luminous mystery. Here's Lauren Daigle, you say. Mm-hmm. 
keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. Am I more than just the sum of every high and every low? Remind me once again just who I am because I need to know.
What a song. So, we conclude now as we remember that Sunday is the Lord's Day. And we strive to end our Sunday in a spirit of thanksgiving, reparation, and love. We cast our worries away before a well-earned rest. We prepare for this rest through prayer. Please join me in praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, come to my assistance. Lord, make haste to help me. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Now we offer a brief examine of conscience, and we resolve to do better, sincerely repenting our sins and recalling with thanks the good things that happened today. So let's think about them now. Let's think about those things that we need to work on, that we firmly resolve to do better. And let's also recall the things we're so grateful for, our blessings. Oh my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because of thy just punishments. But most of all, because they offend thee, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. I firmly resolve with the help of thy grace to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. Amen. This reading is from Revelation, chapter 22, verses 4 to 5. They shall see the Lord face to face, and bear his name on their foreheads. The night shall be no more. They will need no light from lamps or the sun. For the Lord God shall give them light, and they shall reign forever. Protect us, Lord, as we stay awake. Watch over us as we sleep, that awake we may keep watch with Christ, and asleep rest in his peace. Now as we conclude this episode of Then Sings My Soul, let us pray. Loving Mother of the Redeemer, Gate of Heaven, Star of the Sea, assist your people who have fallen yet strive to rise again. To the wonderment of nature you bore your Creator, yet remained a virgin after as before. You who received Gabriel's joyful greeting, have pity on us, poor sinners. Amen. Good night to you, my listeners. Thank you for spending time with me, reflecting in awesome wonder. Join me every week right here on WCAT Radio at 9 p.m. The Sacred Hour of Compline. As you prepare for sleep tonight, may your soul sing peacefully. God bless you.
We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.